The title of our sermon this morning is Bring Out the Book, and that's precisely what I would ask you to do, to bring out your Bible or lift one out of the pew in front of you and turn to the section we've been studying together called Nehemiah. In God's fine planning, as Robert said, uh, we're considering both morning and evening today the life-changing role of the Bible in the community of God. It is the Bible that is to be read and preached, as we will see tonight, and it is the Bible which alone can educate the mind in the things of God, which alone can stir the emotions in godly repentance and joy, and which alone can move the will to obedience. It is a most powerful change agent. So let's uh, ask God that he might change us as we read it now together. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 8, the whole of Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate, in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. 
Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Amen. Praise the Lord for the reading of his word. A relatively recent poll in the UK ranked the Bible as the sixth most indispensable book. 2,000 people were asked in the poll about their favorite book. Uh, That book which, if they were stranded on a desert island, they couldn't bear to part with. And what we learned from this was that sixth most popular was the Bible. Perhaps a little surprising in secular Britain that still so many people believe the Bible to be indispensable. And yet, as this poll also showed, many in our day do not believe that. To Kill a Mockingbird, Harry Potter, Jane Eyre, Lord of the Rings, and Pride and Prejudice were all adjudged as more indispensable than the Christian scriptures. It raises a question this morning. How indispensable is the Bible to you? Christian or not, I I wonder whether the Bible would be the one book that you could not bear to be parted with. Maybe you're even a follower of the Lord Jesus today. Yet if I were to remove the Bible from your home and from your life, I wonder what practical difference it would actually make. Is the Bible on a daily basis indispensable to me and to you? If the answer is no, well, it should be. For the Bible is not only inerrant, it is also sufficient. 
The Bible, indeed, is the most powerful and practical change agent in all of human history. Countless lives down the centuries have been renewed and reformed by the Word of God. And in every true revival in the church of God, it has been the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God which has revitalized the flagging flock of God. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see this Word at work in the life of God's people. We see that it is the book, that it is the truth, that is revitalizing the flagging flock. This eighth chapter actually begins something of a revival among the people in Nehemiah's day. If chapters 1 to 7 in this book are referencing the rebuilding of the walls, then chapters 8 through 12 now are referencing the revival that took place following the rebuilding of the wall. And the driving force, the instigator, which produces the repentance and the obedience that we will see in later weeks, is nothing other than the word of the scriptures. In fact, the thesis that I'm drawing from this chapter this morning, chapter 8, is this. The book of God changes the people of God in heart and mind and will. The Bible is a book for the mind, which changes the thinking. It is a book for the heart, which changes our emotions. And it is a book for the will, which moves us toward obedience, which moves us to do what God would ask of us. So let's look at these in turn this morning. Firstly, the Bible is a book for the mind. It's a book for the mind. This is something we glean from the first eight verses. But these verses also provide some significant background that we must understand. The Israelites, as the last verse of chapter 7 tells us, had recently settled in their towns. Now, you remember why they had been unsettled. Nehemiah 1 through 7 has chronicled how many Jews have sacrificially left their homes and their towns in the rural countryside and moved into the city of Jerusalem. For two months, their toilsome task was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It was all hands to the pump, and people were in the city around the clock. They literally lived and worked and ate and slept within Jerusalem. But having completed the work, and we thought about this last time, after 52 days, no doubt exhausted, they now return home to their towns in the countryside. They settle once more. No doubt some of them were badly in need of a bath by this point. Uh, No doubt all of them were in need of a few days rest. But the respite, we find, was short-lived. For verses 1 and 2 tell us that on the first day of the seventh month, that is just a week or so after the wall's completion, the people pilgrimaged once more to Jerusalem. They went back to the city. Almost certainly the reason for their visit was that the law commanded that they hold a festival 
on this particular day, the first of the seventh. And so, obediently and in their entirety, the Jews observed this sacred day of rest. And they gathered and they grouped for a large assembly. You can just imagine people coming from all the outlying villages. And they gather together in a large and spacious square. It is a square before the water gate, the principal water source of the city. We're told that the men and the women were there. Unlike in the temple where only the men could enter. Here there were people of both genders. And it's on this occasion, it's at this place, it's at this time, that suddenly the book, the Bible, the Word, takes center stage. Ezra, a well-known expositor in his day, who had been there for some 14 years in Jerusalem, is requested to bring out the book of the law. This obviously wasn't a total spontaneous request. Because we learn that they had already built a pulpit for the occasion. But nonetheless, they sort of sprung this on Ezra. Maybe he didn't even know he would be preaching. Who knows? But they call him and they say, Ezra, get up into that pulpit and bring out the book. It is not so much a request as it is a demand. How many a preacher would love a congregation like this? I know sometimes my own indifference as I come at times to hear sermons. What a difference to the situation where the only demand of a church is that you don't preach too long. What an unusual blessing for a congregation to literally call the preacher and say, get up in that pulpit and give us the word. And by the way, don't give us yourself. Don't share your own thoughts or your own ideas. Bring out the book of the law. Why did they ask for the book? Well, because strangely, it is a book which has the power to change lives. It is a book which has the power to radically transform God's people in heart and mind and will. Now, of course, the starting point in that chain is the mind. God always first addresses our heads before he addresses our hearts. I believe we see that in Scripture. And the Word never circumvents our heads. It never bypasses our heads en route to our hearts and our wills. Our God is a being of infinite intelligence. And those who are made in his image are endowed with intellect and with reason. He has given us the capacity to not only hear what he says, but understand what he says. You maybe notice just how frequently the understanding was referred to in this opening section. Four times in the opening eight verses, the word understanding is used. It comes a fifth time in verse 12. Verse 2, for instance, speaks of an assembly made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. Verse 3 similarly refers to the men, women, and others who could understand. Probably referring these others to children who were of an age that they could grasp what was being read, what was being said. And this reminds us that God's Word is intelligible. And God has given us an intellect 
to grasp his intelligible word. Oh, there may be occasions and exceptions to this, as I think is also here implied, when, when some might not be able to understand. I imagine if there are any young babies, I don't see any this particular morning, but some weeks we have young babies. I don't think that they're following the sermon most of the time. They may be hearing it, but they're not following it in their understanding. However, the normal state of affairs is that the vast majority are able to grasp the message of the Bible. And indeed, God is so concerned that we understand that he has not only given us a brain, but he has also given us the brain of others. He's given us the teaching skills of others. These people had Ezra, who was a a very experienced scribe and a gifted teacher. Perhaps even, even more importantly, as Robert drew out for us, they they had the help of the Levites too. Verse 7, the Levites' work was particularly important in helping the people understand the word. They translated what Ezra read in the language of Hebrew, and they translated this into Aramaic. Most of these people spoke Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew. And so they probably didn't understand most of what was being read. And therefore, in the intermissions, between when Ezra would read a section, they would sort of grab a a group from the crowd, and they would read the Scriptures again in Aramaic. They were ancient Bible translators. And not only did they translate the Bible, but they also explained the Bible. They were translators and preachers. It also says... In verse 8, that they gave the meaning of what was being read. Expository preachers, of course, have this as their task and as their aim. The very simple job of an expository preacher is to explain the meaning of what a passage of Scripture says. No more and no less. And why do they do it? Uh, Why all this effort? Why the effort of people? even today, going to all corners of the globe to translate the Bible into people's languages? Why all the hours that are put in as people study the Scriptures in order to bring it to you and serve it up on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or at a conference? The simple reason is that God wants you, He wants me to understand His Word. It matters that we understand what God says. It matters that our faith is not an anti-intellectual one. Christianity may be more than a mere intellectual exercise, but it is not less than intellectual. The person who is not a Christian uh, does not need to switch off their brain when examining Christian beliefs. And the person who is a Christian will not grow very much, will not go very far in their Christian life if they are not willing to exercise their minds. So the Bible is a book for the brain. It's a book for the mind. But it is, secondly, notice, a book for the heart. Now, some of you are more brain people, and some of you are more heart people. So if you're a, more of an emotional heart person, you'll like this point a lot more than the last one. An old story is told of a, of a man who attended a conference There were two preachers preaching, 
Uh, the first preacher was very studied, but he was dry as dust. The second preacher who followed him was very emotional and passionate, but he was totally unstudied. And commenting afterward, the observer was heard to say that the first man had light, but no heat, while the second man had heat, but no light. But you see, the truth is that the preacher and the hearer of the Bible are intended not only to have light for the mind and the understanding, but also heat from the heart in terms of emotion. Indeed, it is not only appropriate, it is normal for the Bible to affect our hearts as well as our heads. There was nothing dispassionate about the effect of God's Word on Ezra's congregation. Even before they read the book, the the very sight of it provoked awe within their hearts. I thought Robert might have acted this bit out, but as they, as they opened the book, as Nehemiah unscrolled the scroll, all the people spontaneously stood up, no doubt in reverence. Ezra then began by praising the Lord, and the people joined in the praise. They lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. There was nothing dry about this. It was in a context of worship that the Bible was read. And and then, having stood up, the people bowed down in worship. You notice that with their their faces to the ground. This is in verses 5 and 6. This is awe expressed. I wonder if we have something approximating awe in our hearts when we open the Bible. It's maybe a little bit easier, maybe in corporate worship, to have that kind of expectation. Maybe more difficult when you're sitting on your own at seven o'clock in the morning and you open your Bible to realize that this is God's holy word. To have a sense of awe. I know, of course, that part of this was cultural. And in the Jewish context, such vocal, expressive, uh, lifting of the hands and so on. And emotion was more typical. Yet the point is not whether we follow the exact formula. The point is whether we express awe at all because it's in our hearts at the Word. I remember uh, at Bible college once being told about the etiquette of going into a Muslim home. And one thing we were told if if we went in to visit a Muslim family was to be very careful about how we handled the Bible, our Bible. They said, don't spill anything on it. Don't lay it down on the floor where people might kick it or where it's dirty. The Muslims would be offended. The Muslims would be offended. And it's not to be pedantic, but... I mean, I've seen Bibles used in people's homes as doorstops. This book provoked awe in Ezra's day. And it also provoked grief in their hearts as Ezra was reading the book, as as the Levites were translating it and explaining the book. After the people came to understand what was being read and what it meant, verse 9 says, and in this order, that they began to mourn and weep. 
reading between the lines, they recognized that they had broken God's law. They understood intellectually that they had disobeyed many of God's commands, that they had not followed many of the instructions. And this intellectual understanding, which just began in the head, trickled down into the heart, and they began to feel a sense of contrition and grief about it. This still happens today, incidentally. When a person reads the Bible from cover to cover, it may begin as an emotional, as an intellectual exercise only, but so often it eventually becomes a very heartfelt exercise. As people come to see that they've fallen short of the glory of God, as they have that godly sorrow which leads to repentance. Yet what is strange in this instance, and it really was a bit of a puzzle to me initially, was that Ezra and company uh, said to the people, stop grieving. Actually, this is inappropriate for you to mourn over your sin. That's a very strange thing, isn't it? We know that in Scripture... It is often a most appropriate thing to grieve, but verse 11, the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah say, do not grieve. And instead they say that the joy, that's the third emotion, of the Lord should be their strength. Now, why on earth do they insist on joy rather than grief? Well, it is not because grief is never appropriate, but it is because joy, not grief, was more appropriate on this day. Again, going back to the context, this particular day was a special feast in the Jewish calendar. Very significantly, it was a feast that followed hard on the heels of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was that time when the sacrifices were made for the sins of all of the people. The Day of Atonement was an appropriate day to grieve over your sins. But it was no accident that following this day of grieving and sacrifice for sin, that there then came, on the first day of the seventh month, what was called the Feast of Trumpets. Because trumpets were blown on that day. It was a day of celebration. It was a day for food and for wine and for feasting. And it's a little bit like Ezra saying to the folks, You know, you don't weep on a wedding day. You don't weep on a wedding day, unless it's tears of joy. Appropriate to this day was joy. And so the people are comforted, and then they are commanded to pull themselves together, to know God's joy, to go home and begin to feast, to eat choice food and enjoy sweet wine. It's interesting in passing how often those who are feeling very down on themselves for various reasons can be helped by a little bit of food and a little bit of something to drink when they haven't, in fact, been eating properly. And they go back and they have a party and they enter into the joy of the Lord. But you see, there are times when to grieve is appropriate, but there are times when God's Word should lead us to joy and celebration. And I wonder... Uh, perhaps, uh, for those of us in our kind of cultural context where we're not very expressive of our joy and our happiness, whether this is a challenge for us. I think of uh, some straight-faced people who will say, 
when challenged on this, but my heart is smiling. Sometimes it's easier to lament than it is to laugh and rejoice in what God has done for us. The point, however, is that the Word of God is that which brings all these emotions out. The awe, the grief, the joy. It should not be uncommon for us to be reading God's Word and to feel, to feel something as it challenges us. We are not to read this book as if we were reading the phone directory. The Bible is to stir us and to move us. Maybe in these days, God is not only stretching you intellectually as you study His Word, but maybe He's doing new things in you emotionally. Maybe there are passages of Scripture, there are aspects of God's character that you've been reading for donkey's years, and yet God is bringing that sense of awe about those truths, that sense of joy, or maybe a sense of grief over sin. Do not neglect that or push that away, but embrace it. So secondly, God's Word is a book for the heart, just as it is a book for the mind. However, finally and thirdly, notice that it is a book for the will. For the will. It's a book for the obedience, for the obedient response. One of the great challenges, I think, for a church that emphasizes expository preaching particularly, is translating the intellectual information and even perhaps at times the heart emotion that we feel when we hear God's Word preached into practical, obedient action. So often this is the missing third step. We grasp the sermon pretty much in our minds. We sometimes feel stirred But then we go home and we have Sunday lunch and the sermon has absolutely no impact on the rest of the day, never mind the rest of the week. And yet God in the Scriptures calls us not only to understand His Word, not only to feel His Word, but to obey His Word. Indeed, without the obedience, the other two steps are pretty pointless. And these verses are a great inspiration to us in this sense. For here was a congregation that didn't just gather for a spiritual knees up and then go away and do their own thing. We see them from verses 13 to 18 applying the Scriptures carefully and deliberately in their lives. On the second day of the month, we see in verse 13, the heads of all the families gathered again for a Bible study. So this is the day after the big celebration in the square. And the heads of the families who were significant figures who kind of had charge of particular groups of God's people, they meet with Ezra for a special time in the Word. What a privilege that must have been. It apparently hadn't been enough for them to be standing for six hours the day before hearing the Bible. They wanted more of God's Word. When God is doing something in your heart, you can never get enough of his word. But what we're told is that during this Bible study, these folk discovered a truth long neglected. We see it in verse 14. They they found in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, 
that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, the Feast of Booths, this was yet another festival. You had the Day of Atonement, you had the Feast of of Trumpets, uh, and then you had the Festival of Booths. And the Festival of Booths, it also took place in the seventh month, but at the end of the seventh month. So it was about two weeks from the time of this Bible study. And so they're studying this passage. It must have been Leviticus chapter 23, which lays out how the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is to be enacted. And as they're studying this, they discover something that they've missed for a long time. I think the, the emphasis uh, in these verses is, is on the fact that they were to live in booths. Not so much that they were to have the festival itself, but that during the festival, they were to build these shelters and to live in them. The Feast of Booths was called that because it commemorated the 40 years that the Israelites had spent in the wilderness, when they had no fixed abode, when they lived in temporary tents. And the Lord had clearly instructed in Leviticus that as they celebrated the Feast of Booths for one week, the people were to move out of their comfy apartments, they were to build just a temporary tent-like shelter, and they were to live in it, they were to slum it out to remind them of God's provision all those years ago in the wilderness. But the people, apparently, were not doing this. They were having the holiday week, but they were no longer practicing this aspect of living in the tents. Now, have you ever had that experience? You come across something in God's Word, and it's almost as if you've never seen it before. Or it's almost the case that you've simply forgotten it. I remember the first time I realized that systematic giving was commanded in the Bible, was commended in Scripture. I hadn't realized that, that it was actually commanded. I I knew giving was an important principle, but I hadn't realized that particular aspect. Now, when you come across something like that, you then have a choice to make. Will you obey God's Word or will you reject God's Word? Oh, you understand it in your head. Oh, you maybe feel a little bit guilty because you've not been doing such and such. But will you obey? These folk come across something in a Bible study they've not been doing. And the great thing is, verse 16, they go out and they do it. They had only two weeks till the festival, so they had to move pretty fast. And these heads of families get the word out to all the people to go out into the the hillsides, to chop down the trees, and to make these booths. And verse 16 tells us they did it. The people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths everywhere, on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the house of God, in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. There was instant obedience. There was immediate compliance. And what was the result of this obedience? Well, the result was, as it always is, in greater joy. Verse 17 says that from the days of Joshua, back when the commands were given, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. It doesn't say that they had not celebrated it, but they had not celebrated it like this. 
and their joy was very great. You see, full obedience leads to fuller joy. I used to think in a rather strange hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I used to find the connection strange that between happiness and obedience. But now I know better. And I think if you're a Christian, you will know better that when we are practically applying and when we are fully obeying God's word, there is a greater joy. We are a happier people. See, the Bible is for the mind. The Bible is for the heart. But the Bible is also for the will. It is to be obeyed. And maybe uh, this day, there are certain aspects of Scripture that are as plain as day, that are as obvious to you as the nose on your face, yet you are not obeying that particular thing. Well, God is calling us to be a church that are not merely hearers, but doers of His Word. Now, as we wrap this up and bring it to conclusion, I want to suggest comprehensively a bit of practical application. As we come to sermons each week, as we read from the Scriptures every day, I think that out of this, there are three questions we should be asking ourselves. The first question is obviously this, what am I to think? What am I to think? That's the the question of the mind. What does this teach me? Secondly, what am I to feel? What am I to feel? And thirdly, what am I to do? What is the truth I've learned intellectually? What is the appropriate affection emotionally? And what is the appropriate action volitionally? If you ask and answer these, the Bible will change you. It will be more than just a book that you read and it's like water through a pipe. It will change you from the inside out. If you are a Christian, I trust that the Bible is the most and the first indispensable book for you. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I pray too that you will understand the indispensability of Scripture. The Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, of the greatest change agent, the Scriptures. And he speaks of the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, uh, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible, says Paul, is able to effect the most profound change in a person, salvation. It can bring a sinner, a rebel against God, back into a right relationship with Him. Salvation involves our eternal rescue from God's judgment and the forgiveness of our sins. And we can enter that experience, not through some mystical route, but by reading the Bible, by encountering Jesus there, for it is a book about Him. And then, as Paul says, by putting our faith, our trust in the person and the work of Jesus. And as we encounter him in the book, we can come to saving faith, even this morning. Many other books can educate you or entertain you, but only this book, as it presents Christ to you, can save you. 
can sanctify and change you for this life and for eternity. The Bible will change us in heart and mind and will. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what we have heard this morning. And we pray, Lord, that no aspect of our response would be left out. May we grasp what has been said, what I have tried to explain this morning. May it be clear. May, Lord, our hearts be moved. Lord, maybe with a sense of grief because we don't treat the book as we should. Or maybe with a sense of joy and assurance in our salvation. Maybe, Lord, you're calling some to repentance today. Do so, Lord. Convict them through the Holy Spirit and the Word. And, Lord, too, help us to obey what you say to us. And may we be a church that not only preaches the Word, but lives it out for all to see. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.